Welcome to Theologizing Life with Anthony Cottrell and the one and only Matt Tracy. Matt Tracy. Never is not weird doing that. (laughs) It's so fun for me, though. I just love it. I think I love it because you think it's weird. Because it makes me uncomfortable. I know. (laughs) Yeah. I like things that make you uncomfortable. Yeah, I know. So uh, it is post Christmas, but it's going to be uh, when this episode releases, it will be just a few days into the new year. So, um, and technically, I think it's okay to say Merry Christmas until. until epiphany 12 days after christmas so of course um so merry christmas and happy new year uh matt what was the favorite gift you got this year Hmm. that's a good question my my wife actually got me an ipad which was a surprise yeah it was one of those things where it's not here yet so i don't have it but it's coming (laughs) that's awesome so on Christmas morning, she literally sent me an email with a picture of an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your gift. So that's nice. It's good for, you know, I when I play in the worship band at church, like I, I've taken a liking to having my music on an iPad so I can just like swipe it. Yeah. Nice. Instead of like having to flip pages and stuff and teaching, yeah. preaching, all that good stuff. So nice. You're going to be one of those tech savvy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have an iPhone, but I have a Windows computer, but like, I feel like I need to make up my mind at some point because I used to have a Mac and then I got rid of it and got a Microsoft computer. So like, I'm just, I'm just all sorts of messed up, but yeah, I might, I might offend some listeners. I don't know, but I have become, I've become Mac, a Mac person. You sent me a document in my inbox that I can't open because it's a pages document. Oh, I'm sorry. I should do that. Ah, I, for- I was like, dang I, it. I forgot. I could open it on my phone, but it's fine. I think I forgot you didn't have a, I think I thought you had a Mac, so I didn't uh, change the format. Yeah. I forgot you don't have Mac. Fine. I have an iPad that's on the way. So don't worry. What about you? What was your favorite gift? So it's kind of s- silly, uh, a little thing. Um, I think one of my favorite gifts was Emily got me these uh, shoes um, that are like these like beachy, uh, I don't know what you would call them. They're like, like canvas shoes and we're going to be going to Florida. Um, so I'm like, they're going to be my Florida shoes. Are they like dad boat shoes? Kind of, <laughs> um, kind of, except like, they're kind of like, Hey dude shoes. If you've seen those styles, no, um, I'm not sure what you're referring to, <laughs> but they're a nice, they're noon bush is the brand and they're really comfortable, nice. but I was pretty excited about those shoes. They were nice. Um, actually this, uh, this, uh, flannel and shirt is another thing Emily got me that was pretty nice. For our listeners, uh, he is wearing a looks like an orange and blue and mm-hmm. yellow flannel shirt plaid pattern. Yeah, I mean the yellow is kind of more of a like a tan, like a like a brownish light brown. But yeah, anyways, so uh, let's this is uh, fascinating uh, listening. I'm sure. Yeah, let's <laughs> uh, before we dive into kind of our follow up to our previous episode about the kingdom of God, uh, we usually like to share some funny, funny news or odd, quirky, interesting, uh, not depressing news is basically the the bar, the standard. And uh, I found a news story that is pretty old, I guess now. Yeah, actually it is pretty old. It's from September, but I'm going to share it because it's pretty interesting. And then Matt, you have one you can share, but the title says for, for $84,000, at least in US 
currency because it's actually this happened in another country. But for eighty four thousand dollars, an artist returned two blank canvases titled "Take the Money and Run." So um, a Danish museum commissioned an artist, and they gave him the equivalent of eighty four thousand dollars. And what they uh, what they wanted him to do was um, reprise an earlier work and using using the cash to sort of visually illustrate uh, the income gap. Uh, was was I guess what he was commissioned to do to like illustrate income gap and it would be at this Danish museum and so they send him money, um, but he instead of doing that uh, he sent them two blank canvases titled "Take the Money and Run," and uh, yeah it's supposed to illustrate like unfair wages and stuff and the person uh, the CEO at the museum said I actually laughed as I saw it but uh, I think the artist has to return the money. Uh, the museum isn't taking legal action. He has time uh, to return the money and all this stuff. Um, but yeah, I thought that was eighty four thousand bucks, and he sent blank crates of blank canvases. Hilarious! Uh, I was, I, so I was briefly an art major uh, in college, and I'm talking like a semester. Like I was barely right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, but I took an art an intro to art class, and basically it was just different weeks of like looking at just these weird works of art that sometimes weren't even works of art it was just like performance art where like there was one example where some dude just like lived underneath a staircase at a museum for like two weeks and that was his piece of art and these people would get commissioned just like millions of dollars to do that stuff so on some level i'm not surprised like right because art's subjective, right? Yeah, exactly. Blank canvas. Made a statement, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. One, one of my favorite ones is the, the it was like a Banksy portrait or picture, not a portrait. It was like a painting by Banksy, this like famous unknown anonymous artist. And mm -hmm. it sold at auction for $2 million or something like that. And the second it got sold, it shredded itself in the frame, like just destroyed itself. The wow. second the money came through. Reminds me of like Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like that was the art you know it just it just went away that's funny the, the artist's name was uh jens honing h-a-a-n-i-n-g i don't know it's it's danish so uh i'm not sure if i'm even pronouncing the first part right but anyways matt do you have a story yeah this one uh this one comes out of japan so we're you know we're foreign foreign uh stories today so my story is a professor at a Japanese university invented a TV screen that people can taste the images on the screen. So no way. Yeah. And I don't think it's like, you know, you see any random show on like Food Network and just lick the screen and taste it. I think it's like <laughs> it's programmed with like images at this point where like he can upload an image and also some kind of weird software that can somehow project the flavor of the food onto the screen. So it's like you, and he's, he's trying to like market it as this, you know, foods of the world experience where like you can just like taste different foods from different restaurants without having to pay for it. Or so you can just like experience another, another culture's, you know, flavors without having to leave your home this is crazy <laughs> so, it's like a digital version of scratch and sniff except exactly. it's like scratch and lick lick and taste yeah <laughs> but like can you imagine how like okay 
in the era of COVID, you've created <laughs> something that you can lick. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not good timing because he was probably working on this for a long, long time. Yeah. And... <laughs> I'm sorry. You have, to, you have to lick the screen and then uh, uh, Lysol it. But yeah. then that tampers with the, then the next person who licks it just tastes straight like bleach and probably not going to be in Best Buy for people to like walk by and sample <laughs> like because that would be super unhygienic. So, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's not like a mass marketed thing. I think it's just one invention, just like a concept that I'm pretty sure he was just like, I'm going to try and do this and then figure out what to do with it later on because yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exactly seem practical to me, but. Could you imagine watching like the British baking show or whatever? The, yeah. Like being able to just like taste the all the judges instead of like tasting the cake, they're just like licking an iPad. <laughs> uh, oh man. <laughs> Technology. At some point, never mind, I'm not gonna go there. Um fun stuff. <laughs> news from maybe we should call this segment news from around the world. Uh, I mean we, maybe but, just the well, this is a part two, a follow-up to our conversation in our last episode about the kingdom of God and uh, the significance, the sort of biblical theology of the kingdom of God and how it relates to the gospel. Uh, just as a matter of refreshing our, our memories and being on the same page, uh, Matt, what is the kingdom of God and why is it important for us to interpret the gospel through the lens of the kingdom? So we talked about how the the kingdom that Jesus taught was an ongoing reality that is kind of breaking into the world right now where the the realities that exist in eternity in heaven are invading the world here now and pushing back the stranglehold that Satan has over our world today. So Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven is accessible to people now, but it won't be fully consummated until he returns. And so we can claim citizenship in the, you know, future eternal kingdom here and now. But part of what part of the the thrust of Jesus's teaching, I guess, was that we don't being part of the kingdom is not waiting for the world to end. It is bringing the kingdom here to our world today uh, through our lives, through our actions, through our treatment of people, through our acts of service, through our acts of sacrifice and surrender through our worship. So Jesus kind of recruited his followers to be, you know, kingdom agents, I guess, in the world today. And kind of the catalyst, the means through which the kingdom is consummated. So yeah, that's kind of the the definition that we landed on. Yeah. I like the the sort of metaphor of pregnancy. You know, when my wife was pregnant with our children, um, we believe that there was actual genuine life in her womb. Um, but uh, my son or my daughter were not fully, their life was fully alive. It was fully, really, truly, actually there in her womb, um, but not in the same way that they are now, where they are, uh, I'm able to hold them, I'm able to look at them, I'm able to see uh, their smiles and their eyes and interact. Like they have a life and a vitality and a will of their own that is free, unfortunately, sometimes to be exerted. And so um, as it relates to the kingdom, the kingdom of God, I believe in Jesus was inaugurated or started breaking through, but in the same way, sort of that um, 
that, that earth and creation and believers are sort of pregnant with the kingdom, um, which is maybe a weird metaphor, but like we have the kingdom of God is really actually there, but it's not fully birthed yet. Like it's not fully, um, you know, sort of outside the womb, if you will, it's not fully realized, but the implications of that, um, a couple of things is I think it's N.T. Wright who puts it this way, that like the goal of the gospel is not to get you to heaven, but to get the life of heaven into you. And the invitation of Jesus too, I think this is important because the invitation to Jesus wasn't say a sinner's prayer. So you um, die and go to heaven. Uh, the invitation was to follow him and, and following him means we live a certain kind of life. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the, the gospel of the kingdom is this, invitation to be people of the kingdom, to be people who embody and live out the ethic of the kingdom in the here and now as Jesus followers. And, um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to actually read a quote because I think they say it concisely. And then we can go into some questions because I think this leads, uh, if the kingdom is about us, the, the life of heaven being in us and, uh, us living out the ethic of the kingdom and being people of the kingdom. Like, what does that practically mean in the here and now? How does that change how we live and how we view things? But sort of a, a, a quote from when helping hurts by um, last names are Corbett and Ficker. I forgot the first names, but um, co-authors when helping hurts, uh, they say, Jesus summarized his ministry as follows. This is quoting Luke four forty three. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God Good news is also, you know, shorthand for gospel. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So Jesus' message was, this is how they summarize it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am the king who is bringing healing to the entire cosmos. If and only if you repent, believe in me, you will someday enjoy all of the many benefits my kingdom brings. Jesus died for our souls, but he also died to reconcile. That is to put into right relationship all that he created. Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom and he showed the good news of the kingdom. Later in the book, they say uh, several pages later, Jesus redemption is cosmic in scope, bringing reconciliation to both individuals and systems. And as ministers of reconciliations, which that's a a quote, kind of a a callback to Paul in, I think it's Romans eight or first, that's first Corinthians, isn't it? Uh, but as ministers of reconciliation, his people need to be concerned with both as well. So in other words, I think what we're concerned with or what we want to emphasize today is like uh, getting saved isn't just about checking off some boxes, going to church and being a, uh, a relatively you know, moral, middle-class suburbanite. Uh, it's about living differently as people who are reconciled to God and as ministers of reconciliation. So which is from Second Corinthians. I just looked it up, by the way. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians five. Thank you, Google. Yeah. <laughs> Second Corinthians five. I didn't do um, Bible quizzing when I was a kid. I'm not good with knowing references off the top of my head, but yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't do Bible quizzing either. Um, so the question is, how do we change, or how does this change how we live? And Matt, it might be fair. I don't know. Uh, it might be fair for us to disclose that we lean towards uh, a nonviolent sort of theological posture. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's going to shape a couple of the things we will talk about. Um, I think what I want to say about that briefly is there are other theologians and other uh, people who interpret scripture 
throughout history who would not land where we land. Um, but at the same time, we aren't outside of the realm of orthodoxy. Uh, we actually have good historical theological grounding as well for where we, we would be coming from. I just want to acknowledge that there are uh, different ways of working out how a Jesus follower you know, should approach uh, violence and, um, and things, things of that nature. Matt and I lean, well, I, maybe I shouldn't speak for you, but lean towards a nonviolent sort of posture. Uh, so that's going to shape some things. Yeah. You're not speaking for me. That's we we're pretty, pretty much in agreement. Yeah. Which we are going to talk a little bit about that. I guess, like I said, I just want to be clear. Um, this is not like something that would cause me to not break bread with you if you disagreed with me on. And um, it's, it, there is, I think good uh, other theological positions. Um, this is just where I uh, am convicted and it shapes a lot of how I view it. So um, yeah. So Matt, I think I'll just kind of start by asking a few questions and what we're going to kind of look at is a couple different categories. Like how does this change? Uh, the, how does the gospel of the kingdom change the lens through which we sort of interpret the world? How does it shape our worldview, our paradigms? And then in doing so, how does it shape how we live? And so I'm just going to go ahead and list some of the, the categories um, that we may kind of address uh, people and status. Uh, how, how does the gospel of the kingdom change how we view other people and their value and worth? Uh, how does the gospel of the kingdom shape how we view violence and revenge and forgiveness? How does it shape how we view money and greed? How does it shape our view of power and authority? So Matt, uh, maybe we can just start with how does the gospel of the kingdom change how we view people and sort of their status or their categories or um, their, their value uh, as, as people? So I think the, I don't think, I know <clears throat> that the human status as uh, bearers of the image of God should be first and foremost in anyone's view, anyone's perception of another person's value and worth. And I think that's the starting point because the kingdom of heaven, um, God, Jesus died to make the kingdom of heaven available to his creation. And as bearers of his image, we are, you know, the first in creation to inherit it. And so the approach that we have, you know, with respect to the kingdom to other people is that this person is created in God's image as every human being is. Um, therefore, every person has the opportunity, the chance, the potential to be a part of eternity alongside of you and I. And I think the <clears throat> the most, you know, striking biblical example, I think, is when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you know, there are people who, uh, people of Nineveh uh, who repented at Jonah's preaching are going to be in heaven. while you Pharisees who think you're righteous are going to be, you know, on the outside looking in. So, you know, God is not, you know, this might be people, this, you know, is open for debate, but God is not you know, selective in the, uh, the type of person that he invites to the kingdom to be a part of his, his new creation. And, um, so that, that should humble us and it mm -hmm. should also kind of open our minds to, and open our uh, capacity to love other people who are different than us, who uh, hurt us, who might be, you know, doing evil 
unrepentant sin, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I just want to tease this out more. I guess a, a scripture I'll just read to anchor it is so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, this is important, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 26, 29. So part of the backdrop is why why this is, I think when you understand this, it's obvious, it sticks out in scripture. So uh, Abraham's descendants believe they were uh, they were God's people. The Israelites were God's people through a covenant God made with Abraham, which was true. But back at the beginning of the covenant, God said he was going to bless Abraham so he would be a blessing to all nations. But somehow that blessing to all nations became sort of exclusive and um, and rigid and legalistic. And so especially by Jesus' time, which in defense of the Pharisees, they were sort of trying to, you know, it's after the exile, after they had so miserably failed the covenant um, to keep up their end of the covenant that they were exiled into um, Babylon or uh, first it was Assyria, right? Assyria and then Babylon. Or no, no, no. It was Babylon first and then Assyria. My history is struggling. I forget which one came first. Assyria, then Babylon. Yeah, Assyria, Babylon, then Persia. But anyways, <clears throat> so the Pharisees are trying to uh, guard against covenant unfaithfulness. And so they they try to follow the covenant really rigidly. But by Jesus' time, there was this very exclusive um, view that you had to meet all these legalistic, like obey the law to a T. And then there's also a little bit of like racial religious, ethnic prejudice. Like you see it against the Samaritans, but also definitely against the the wider Gentile world, the Romans at the time, they were the enemy. And this shaped their their hope for the Messiah, that he would redeem them, liberate them from the oppression of Rome. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he interacts with a Samaritan woman, or he heals a centurion's servant, or he ministers in the Decapolis, or uh, he tells a parable about what it means to love your neighbor, and he includes a Samaritan. Um, these are all like very obvious moments when he is saying the kingdom of God is accessible to those people, whoever like those people are in your category. And I think it's important for us to sort of contextualize that and apply it to ourselves today that um, whoever those people were then, we're in a different context. So a Samaritan, you and I have no like prejudice against Samaritans. It, it has no uh, direct, but if you contextualize it, like, um, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to get a little, I'm going to get a little edgy here. Um, what about an illegal immigrant, you know, um, or someone who votes differently than you or someone who has a different posture about uh, the, the pandemic or someone who's from a Middle Eastern country? Uh, I, I mean, I remember back in 2001 and following years after 9-11, uh, it was very easy to have a bias at, at least, if not just an outright hatred for anyone who looked sure. Middle yeah. Eastern. Um, the kingdom of God challenges, I guess what, the, what I want to succinctly say is Jesus and the way he interacted with people in the gospels directly confronted the exclusivist, prejudicial, legalistic, judgmental attitudes of the people of his day. Um, the forgiving the woman. So it wasn't just about the ethnic stuff, like even the, 
the clean or unclean. He touches people with leprosy. He Mm -hmm. uh, eats with tax collectors and sinners. He forgives the woman who is caught in adultery. He uh, interacts with people who were ceremonially, ritually unclean. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is accessible to them. Like throughout the gospels, he directly confronts. And so we need to apply that to today, like, and be introspective and aware of our own prejudices, biases, attitudes, views of people. And um, whether it's someone who struggles with addiction or someone who uh, is from Mexico and you're suspicious they're not here legally. Like the kingdom of God calls us to see them first and foremost as people created in God's image, whom he loves and so we're dying for. Mm-hmm. And it's it was never a secret. Like it's not something that Jesus just like he didn't make it up on the spot. Like throughout history, God was including non-Israelites mm-hmm. in his promises. Mm-hmm. You know, uh think of you know in, in Joshua, Battle of Jericho, you know, the first person that was you know, rescued, I guess, was Rahab, yep. <laughs> who was a Canaanite prostitute. Right. You know, Double Ruth. whammy. Yeah. <laughs> Ruth was a Moabite. Like she mm-hmm. wasn't an Israelite. You no, know, Moab, a historical enemy of Israel. She, you know, was part of David's lineage. Also yep. Jesus, you know. Yep. So like, it was never a secret. Like God's grace is surprising. It's not exclusive. It's not reserved for a specific person, group of people, type of person, ethnicity. It's worldwide. Yep. Um, Israel's promise was never meant to exclude them. It was meant to lead them to open their arms to, to other people. So, and I think I'm, I'm going to press in a little bit more here because I think what's important is to acknowledge, like, so people are quick to say like, I'm not racist or I'm not judgmental. We, we like to think that about ourselves, but I think that's naive because the natural human inclination is to sort of interpret our world through like putting things in categories. It's how our brain makes sense of the world. And we can sometimes be unaware of the categories we have when it comes to people. And it takes, I think, intentionally acknowledging that or intentionally engaging with people who are different or different cultures and things. Um, It, it, yeah, I I think before we just jump to, well, I don't hate someone because of the color of their skin. Um, okay. But do you have basic assumptions about their culture that you put on a, a good or bad scale, you know, um, or I don't judge people. Okay. Um, if, uh, I don't know if, a, a someone released from the, the prison, um, ministry or whatever, and they're on, they're on, uh, did their time or they're on work release and they walk into your church. Like, how does that, how does that sit with you? Like, maybe that's like, we need to be aware of what's going on in our hearts, in our minds. Like, what, like when you interact with different people, like how, what's happening there. And sometimes I think the kingdom of God invites us to just challenge that sometimes. Now there's wisdom, like, um, you know, uh, an accused sex offender or whatever, like, do I need to let them babysit my kids? No. Um, but should I want for them to be reconciled to God? Like, that's the crazy thing is like the gospel, Jesus said, father, forgive them for they know not what they do while he's being crucified. Like the, the gospel calls us to, to want for people's reconciliation with God, uh, to, to, for that to be our highest desire for, for even the most despicable of people. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I'm getting, I'm starting to preach. I'm sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> people in status categories are creating an image of God, the kingdom of God. 
challenges that? How does the kingdom of God challenge our tendency and, oof, dare I say in America, our love for violence, revenge, and what does the kingdom of God teach about forgiveness? Before we move on, can I read a John Calvin quote? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony thinks I'm a closet Calvinist. I'm not. but I, I know you're not. This is one of my favorite, my favorite quotes by any theologian ever, because I just think it's so well said. This is from uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, was, which was written in the 1530s. So it's a little uh, dated, but I think it's really good. <clears throat> Therefore, whatever man you meet who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. Say he is a stranger, but the Lord has given him a mark that ought to be familiar to you by virtue of the fact that he forbids you to despise your own flesh. Say this man is contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. Say that you owe nothing for any service of his, but God, as it were, has put him in his own place in order that you may recognize toward him the many and great benefits with which God has bound you to himself. Say that he does not deserve even your least effort for his sake, but the image of God, which recommends him to you, is worthy of your giving yourself in all your possession. And so it goes on. It's a, it's a longer quote, but I just think it's just so beautifully said that, you know, we have no reason to hold contempt toward other people because they are our flesh. Like they are our own flesh created in God's image. The Lord thought them beautiful enough to give them the divine image. And that alone should be enough for us to hold compassion and grace uh, and hope for reconciliation for them. Agreed. Thank you, John Calvin. Thank you, John Calvin. So I think the sequence or the order of how we view people shapes sort of the next category, how the kingdom of God influences uh, how we approach violence, revenge, and forgiveness. Um, I think I'm, I'm going to just begin with Isaiah's vision of sort of God's coming kingdom, like of creation in Israel slash God's people restored and a segment of Jesus's teaching. That way you can sort of anchor it in scripture. Um, you know, cause that's one of the things when people disagree with someone's theology, they usually say it's not biblical. Like that's one of the attacks. So I'm just going to anchor it there first. And then we can launch off that uh, with sort of some hermeneutical interpretation, right? So um, Isaiah two, two through four says in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the Hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And Jesus uh, teaching, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be, this is important, that you may be children of your father in heaven. So um, this, this, I'm just going to read, this is my statement of sort of summarizing this. And Matt, you can, you can sort of share your uh, additional thoughts. Violence and revenge are not allowed in the kingdom of God. And so some people say like Isaiah's vision is you know, when the kingdom of God fully comes, that full realization of the kingdom, it's not going to be a reality on the side of heaven, to which I agree. However, 
in the same way that we strive to live free from sin because it will no longer be present in the fullness of the kingdom. I, I believe I have the conviction that Jesus followers should strive to eliminate violence um, and, and surrender our bitterness and revenge on this side of heaven, that yeah. we should be working towards eliminating violence, not just sort of saying, well, it's not going to be fully eradicated until the kingdom comes. So I'm just going to participate because we don't do that with sin. Well, yeah. sin's not going to be fully eliminated until glorification, till you know, the coming of kingdom. So I'm just going to sort of live it up and sin now. We don't say that with sin. So that's sort of my posture on violence. I think the best thing, one time I heard you say this, this, I love this. Uh, you said one time someone was talking about guns, um, which I, we should tread carefully here, but you, you kind of made a joke. I've already turned mine into gardening tools. Um, <laughs> that's the posture. I think that just captures sort of the posture that Matt and I sort of hold is that we feel the kingdom calls us to turn our weapons into gardening tools. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to already begin that process now, <laughs> a little caveat I've shot guns at a shooting range. It is fun. Um, I would do it with someone. I would go to a shooting range and shoot guns with them. Um, I understand a lot of people have a, a deep, even love for, like it's a hobby. Um, I just personally will not own them, uh, but I'll go shoot with someone, but I guess that could be hy- hypocritical. I guess I just try to not be dogmatic about my position on this, on, on some things. I am dogmatic. I think about our heart on forgiveness, but anyways, Matt, that's the, there's some launch thoughts. What are your, what are your thoughts? So the, the Isaiah passage, there's actually a, an organization out there. I forget who runs it, but they're, they actually have people surrender their guns and they make them into gardening tools. Like literally that's what the organization is about. Is that like, was that founded by Shane Claiborne? I think, I think it might've been Shane Claiborne. He wrote a book, uh, that I still need to read a couple of, couple of years ago uh, about that. But the the spirit behind that passage is that in the kingdom, that which was once used for destruction will soon be used for creation, for mm-hmm. productivity. Yep. And so instruments that are only designed to destroy and kill have no place whatsoever in God's kingdom. That applies i think to weaponry but it also applies to like you said a spirit an attitude a heart of revenge uh, of violence of you know retribution that also has no place in god's kingdom you know jesus even said <laughs> uh you know maybe it was paul you know our tongues our words have the power to kill and destroy like those have no place in the kingdom of heaven so you know, violence, it doesn't just apply to weaponry. It applies to anything that can be used to kill and destroy. So I'm with you. Like I, I said that jokingly, you know, about the, the plowshares, but I, I tend to avoid guns. Like I don't, uh, people have invited me to go shooting before and I tend to politely dec- decline. I'm not dogmatic about it, but that's just my personal stance uh, is I'm going to kind of stay away from that um, even for entertainment purposes um, because I want to do my best to kind of distance myself from distance myself, you know, from that, the idea of killing another human being, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Like, Matthew, uh... when you go to a shooting range, sometimes you shoot at targets that are shaped like people. Yeah. And, even that just kind of 
you know, just makes me a little uncomfortable. And so I, I don't, I'm not dogmatic about it. And I, I don't argue with people openly um, about their position on things because, you know, I, we live in rural Indiana, people open carry here all the time. Yeah. And it's a huge part of our culture and I, I'm not a, a jerk about it. It's just something I choose not to engage with because I believe that, you know, as being, being a kingdom citizen, part of that means being averse to the things that God is averse to. And I think violence, weaponry, killing, retribution, violence, it's God is averse to those things. And so I should do as well. Yeah. In Matthew five, verse 38 uh, through 42, Jesus says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And I love this, but I say to you, in Matthew's gospel, that segment from Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus says, you have heard, but I say to you. And I think of that, but I say to you, as sort of a paradigm shift. Jesus is challenging previously held paradigms, and we need to pay attention to those, I think. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist. Excuse me. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and do not turn away from those who want to borrow. Now, I think what what has happened with Jesus' teachings is there are two extremes, I think, that happens. One extreme is people take this and they apply it so literally and dogmatically that they um, are like advice. So someone maybe uses this passage to tell a woman to stay in an abusive relationship or um, to not fight, you know, if the husband's getting a divorce and not, you know, like things in court, um, advice is given and it's followed so rigidly and dogmatically that people are, are almost abused or taken advantage of. The other extreme though, is that people just sort of write Jesus's teachings off about all this stuff as like unpractical. Like it's just not pragmatic. And in a sense, that's super disrespectful to Jesus. Like, oh, that's cute. Jesus. Like, oh, yeah. It'd be fun if the world worked that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, uh, you, you just don't understand like little, little Matthew five through seven, Jesus, like, we don't need to take your teachings about loving our enemies seriously and not getting revenge. And, and I think both extremes have very dangerous outcomes. So I guess what I would say, cause I, like you though, I'm not dogmatic about some of this stuff. So, um, I realize on this side of heaven, violence happens. And on this side of heaven, sometimes, uh, passivity contributes to that, which is not life-giving. So like sometimes defending the powerless or defending the helpless, um, I think there are instances where violence may be necessary. Um, a couple of things for me is I prefer like law enforcement and national, you know, military. Uh, I, f- I feel like they fall under a different category um, that like, I don't think it's wrong for a Christian to be a police officer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I guess I would say is two, two principles, I think when it comes to violence and revenge, one is um, it should grieve our hearts. Like if someone were to break into my home and were hurting my wife or my children and it required that I kill them in order to stop them, that is not something I should celebrate as being the most heroic thing I've ever done. Even though like putting myself in danger is heroic. Sure. I, I, I see how you can argue that, but 
the fact that it, we live in a world that's so broken that I had to take someone's life or I would have to, that should grieve my heart. Cause it grieves God's heart. Right. Um, but the, so that contrasts our culture in almost every, you know, man action flick out there that elevates the, the hero getting revenge, taking matters into his own hands, um, and, and annihilating the bad guy. And, and it, at the least getting even, if not giving the bad guy, uh, not just, not just what he deserves, but more than what he deserves as far as justice. Right. So that's that the kingdom of God, I think contrasts our culture in that, that violence is something that grieves God. Um, the second principle I think I would share is that Jesus words should cause us to wrestle with, uh, what's happening in our hearts when it comes to how we view violence or revenge or enemies, um, whether they're personal enemies, like someone who made me mad at work or like America's enemies. Like, I don't know if you view, you know, the Taliban and terrorists, we should be aware of what's going on in our heart. And we need to guard against Paul talks about a root of bitterness. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus has some pretty strong words after the teaching on the, uh, the Lord's prayer about, forgiving. And if we do not forgive our heavenly father will not forgive us. And I don't think that's an arbitrary, like transactional thing. I think if we do not forgive other people, we're not able to receive God's forgiveness. Like there's something it like hinders us from being to having the posture that humbly repents and receives God's forgiveness. It's like the parable of um, the servant who had this astronomical debt that the King forgave. And then the servant goes out and holds his one of his servants accountable for a little debt he owed. Um, I think Jesus, that parable is illustrating. That's what it's like when we don't forgive. So in order to truly receive and understand God's forgiveness, we need to forgive other people. So I guess I would say like you own guns and you think sometimes like standing up for the week means like you might have to uh, um, take someone's life. Um, you know, they bring the scenario where if I was in Chicago and I saw someone getting mugged, like, would I just do nothing? Um, like, I guess what I'd say is I, I don't, I'm not a pacifist because I think there's arguments when that can be made that there's ne- sometimes things are necessary, but I like to say I'm a non-retaliationist or like that. I, I have a non-violent theology. I don't know. Right. So I, th- I think I've said this before. <laughs> it's gotten pushback from a lot of people, mostly on my blog posts from people I don't know, but uh... <laughs> I'm doubling down on it because I, I truly believe that self-preservation is not a biblical right. It's not mm. a it's not a Christian right because Jesus didn't exercise it. Jesus did not act in he did not act in the spirit of self-preservation. He acted in a a posture of sacrifice in everything he did. And so people tie in you know our Second Amendment right to own a weapon. Um, with a, you know, God-given right to protect ourselves. But that's not in the Bible. It's just, it just does not align with the teaching of Jesus, the right to protect yourself. I don't think it's a biblical right. Um, That being said, I don't disagree, you know, if you have the right to own a gun and you have it in your possession, in your house, rightfully own it, you've you have the license to have, I don't really know how it works. So I don't really know what all goes into it, but if you have it rightfully, legally, um, safely, I believe that, you know, it's your right to have that thing. But the question I think that we need to be asking ourselves is like, am I chomping at the bit to use it? Mm. Does the, does the thought of shooting someone who breaks into my house, like, does that give me some kind of thrill? 
Like, would I be eager to do that? Or would I look for other ways to, you know, de-escalate the situation, like a, a, a non-violent response? Um, same thing with, I don't believe that it's wrong for a Christian to be a police officer or be in the military. Cause you know, violence is not part of the kingdom of God, but you know, justice is, you know, and I think that that's as, good as agents of God as agents of God's kingdom. Like justice is part of our calling, you know, in the world and seeking justice. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately in the sinful world we live in involves uh, acts of retaliation but at the same time, the question still is, am I relishing this opportunity to harm someone bodily? Am I daydreaming about it? Mm. <laughs> is it something that I've, you know, is, is it something that I'm rejoicing in? Because uh, it doesn't, God's not rejoicing in it. Right. Yeah. That, that was really the, good. I thought of the, uh, I guess the the Kyle Rittenhouse trial where the, the person that one of the people he shot was a, a convicted sex offender and people basically said you know good riddance uh he, mm. he should be dead he deserved to die and and it's just like really i is god rejoicing in someone's death uh is that really the justice that god demands um I'm, i think the answer is no um so i think i'm trying to say is we shouldn't be chomping at the bit for violent justice or violent retaliation um because Jesus didn't. <laughs> and it's not part of the kingdom of heaven. I think that was really good. I think that's a fair, just to sort of like give a, um, like I said, the reason we're not dogmatic about it, I think is because what you said is, so violence isn't part of the kingdom of God, but justice is. That was a really good statement. And so I think that's why I leave room and like to say, I'm not a pacifist is like, like you said, there are instances, um, where, uh, it may be necessary in the name of justice. And so I think people can make, I think an, I think that argument can be made. So I want to be fair to it. However, I think what we want to emphasize and what you emphasize was our heart posture. Like um, our heart posture can be contaminated by our human sense of justice in uh, revenge, in retaliation, in retribution. And we just need to be really vigilant about guarding against that, I think. And- yeah. Um, and then the other thing you, you went to, and I think, you know, th this could make people mad. So, but I, but I think it's really important is like, you know, I've seen t-shirts or bumper stickers, like God guns and country, <laughs> like as if they're, they're synonymous or on an equal playing field, or as if they're like equal values. And I just want to say, no, like, um, do I disagree with the second amendment? Do I disagree with a person's right to preserve or protect themselves? I don't necessarily disagree with it. Like you said, um, do I think it's biblical or has any biblical precedent? No. Like the, the example of Jesus. And so people say, well, that was the cross. He had to die on the cross for our sins. Yada, yada, yada. Okay. Fair enough. Have to. Well, <laughs> right. Um, Those two. But, but so, how I anyway, keep going. Still fair, fair. So, okay. Fair enough. You make the argument that it was for salvation. Okay. Um, his followers though the early church um, for, for centuries also chose the route of not uh, choosing self-preservation. Like they were martyred, they were killed um, by enemies. And, and there's some stories of them like Jesus, hoping for the, the salvation of their enemies. Uh, 
as Jesus said, father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So that's like, that is our example, I guess. Like the second amendment is not our, should not define in, in American Western values or American patriotic values or American Hollywood cinema with, you know, Denzel Washington in the, uh, elim- is it eliminator? So it's called, or, uh, uh, taken or, um, Russell Crowe and gladiator or I guess the eliminator. I'm trying to think what it's not, uh, it's not the eliminator equalizer 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 there you go equalizer terminator but no that's our no no yeah like (laughs) like those are not in you know full disclosure like i've seen equalizer and all that stuff like i get it um i like a good action flick i'll be honest however as my theology has changed i am losing my sort of taste for some of it my point is, is those are not our standard jesus is our standard and in reference to the kyle rittenhouse just to sort of anchor it god said in um, Ezekiel thirty three eleven, he says, uh, tell them as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die house of Israel? Um, the, we should not delight in or take pleasure in even the death of the wicked because God doesn't. Yeah. I think the those are some a bad person is still murder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think those are good. And and people may disagree with some of it, but I think we've, we've given enough like principles that I think are, I mean, I feel pretty biblically grounded that hopefully this gives people enough to like, at least wrestle with your theology on this is what I would encourage people like, uh, and, and be aware if your arguments or resistance to it, is it, is it mostly pragmatic? Um, or is it actually, uh, you know, discerning the spirit and the scriptures on, on the issue. So anyways, how does the kingdom of God shape the way we see money and the use of money? Um, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures to sort of, again, anchor, uh, anchor our thoughts here. And the one's going to be from first John. Uh, so this is one of Jesus's disciples. So someone who sat under Jesus's teaching. So his teachings are shaped by Jesus's teachings. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. I I love how clear this scripture is. Like, How can God's love be in you if you are hoarding possessions when you know there's someone who has need? And then Jesus' teachings, Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21, and then verse 24, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Those are just a few scriptures. There's actually... Uh, the, the Bible is loaded with scriptures about giving to the poor and the needy and the caring for the orphan and the widow. And um, there's just so many, but those are just a couple anchor texts. So how does the kingdom of God, how does me being a Jesus follower, living, uh, seeking for the life of the kingdom to be alive in me, how does that shape how I view money? And how does that maybe contrast our culture, like in our world's view of money? I mean, I think our culture and our world's view of money is get as much as you can and spend it as well as you can because 
you can't take it with you when you go. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that leads to, I think, a lot of sinful mismanagement of it. Sinful mismanagement, even of money that we don't own, because what well, isn't the national average for a person's debt, like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, yeah, I don't yeah. know the exact number, but it's like we're spending money we don't even have. Yeah. And I think that just speaks to our culture's unhealthy posture toward it. Uh, you know, get as much as you can, as fast as you can, however you can, and spend it as quickly as you can. Um, I think that contrasts pretty heavily God's God's posture toward generosity. You know, God is the creator of all that exists, and he gave it to us. He bestowed it upon us. He blessed it. He blessed us with it. Um, he hears the prayers of his people. Like he uh, willingly sacrificed his own life, his own son uh, for our sake. Um, if anyone has a right to hoard, it's God <laughs> because he created everything and he, he chose to use what he created, what he made to love. And I think as stewards of his creation and heirs of his kingdom, we're called to do the same. And I don't think it is sinful to have money. It's not sinful to be rich. I, I think that if you earn money, it's not a bad thing. It's your, it's the potential for money to become an idol that takes the place of God in your life. I think that the Bible most urgently warns us against. It's not the, you know, earning of money. Money is important, I think. It's just part of the, the world that we live in. Um, but it's the potential for money to become an idol that I think is what Jesus is getting at uh, yeah. is, you know, the thing that, <laughs> you know, you can't serve two masters. You can't have money be the Lord of your life and also, you know, Jesus be the Lord of your life. Yeah. I think this is tricky because again, people can be dogmatic or rigid about stuff. Um, but Paul wrote, and I, I had to, I had to look up exactly where, but in first Timothy um, six, Verse 10, he, he talked about the love of money is the root of all evil. And a lot of people misinterpreted it said money is the root of all evil. It's the love. It's the affection. It's the money having a place. And I think there's a couple a couple things. I, I would say maybe two. No, I, I'll, I'll, I'll condense this like a good preacher into three sort of <laughs> three, three points of being aware of, of money. Um, one is when money and possessions define our value and our status. Like when we have to have uh, the new vehicle or update the kitchen or have, um, you know, certain clothes or whatever, like when it's a status symbol. Um, and that's very, that's very real. So I was looking up, um, have you heard of this guy named Salt? He's called Salt Bay. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, he, He's a restaurant owner. I think he has some in LA and then New York. Um, he's known for his meat and he's like, he's an interesting character. He He's definitely um, eccentric. Eccentric is a good word. I wouldn't necessarily describe him as putting off a humble uh, vibe either, but his steakhouse has these gold leaf tomahawks. Um, which a normal, like the cut of meat, not like the ax, right? Yeah. Like a cut of meat. <laughs> um, and so I'm not sure which part of the, the steak it is, but it's a, a tomahawk. Um, but a normal tomahawk 
will cost you $275. So just for that cut of steak, it's almost $300. Mm-hmm. But you can get it covered in edible gold leaf. Now, it's tasteless. It's, it is edible 24 karat gold leaf that covers this meat, but it has no taste, but it drives the cost up to a thousand dollars for something you are going to deposit in the toilet later. It's, it's nuts. Like why, and why would people do that? Well, it's a status thing. Like you can look yeah. up salt Bay on, on Instagram. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Instagram it. And there's these like celebrities and people. So like, I think when it comes to money, like the kingdom of God challenges us and calls us like this. And it goes back to what we talked about originally about people's value. Like we're creating the image of God. That's our identity. That's our value. So money is not about status. Uh, the other thing that I would caution is money being, um, so money's not about status and money's not about pursuing pleasure. Like if money is a means to your fulfillment and satisfaction through various uh, avenues of pleasure, um, that's, that is an indicator that money may have uh, 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 too high of a place in your life. Now I want to be clear, like, do Emily and I go on dates and go to restaurants where we enjoy food? Do we go on vacation? Do we go? Yes. I'll, I'll you know, I'll summarize these and then I'll give my sort of the, the way at least we try to balance it out. So status, pleasure, or then trust um, money being like our trust, like what we trust in for security. So when money defines your status, when money is the means to get pleasure and when money is where you put your trust um, for sort of safety or security or hope, um, those are all indicators that, that the love of money might be taking root. And that's an idol we need to add one more. Yeah. When you use it to oppress other people. Oh, oh man. So that talks a lot about the, especially in the prophets. Um, a lot of those were, uh, written to the rich, the upper class who were abusing the poor, Mm -hmm. using their resources to abuse and take advantage of people. Yeah. That's that's good. Top of my head. No, that's good. So when money puts you in a position of power and then you defend that power, no matter who you take advantage of, Mm -hmm. right. Uh, that's not, that's not good. (laughs) That's not in line with the kingdom. Matt, I want you to speak to this too, but I'm just going to share. So how Emily and I wrestle with this now, it's not like we're rolling in, in money. I'm a pastor, but, um, but we have been blessed actually, um, in a lot of ways, especially this last year with the sale of our home. Um, and there are some financial goals we have and some savings goals and investing goals and things, but our general posture is I want to live open-handed. So what that means for us is we, uh, as we increase our income, we increase not just like our tithe to the church, obviously, but like proportionately we give above and beyond that to things. Um, and, but additionally, what we have, we want to hold with an open hand. So what we have, we want to be able to be a blessing to people. So our home, for example, especially our home in Warsaw was a place where we tried to bless people um, through hospitality. Uh, and then another just general rule of, of living open-handedly is like, we try to be willing to consider other sort of um, charitable opportunities. Like we try to live with more of a posture of um, just having, like just trying to foster a willingness to let go of our money, you know, to be able to surrender it um, while at the same time enjoying blessing because scripture does depict material possessions as blessing from God. Like it can be blessing, but I think it's when you begin to love the blessing you know, the gift more than the giver, right. Mm -hmm. That it's dangerous. So those are just some things, I guess I would say, 
Um, what are your thoughts? No, I, I like the kind of the posture of, of open-handedness. Um, yeah, we, uh, my wife and I are, um, we've been pretty blessed with, uh, in a lot of ways, just comfort wise, um, in our lives through, um, just various, you know, job opportunities and um, even contributions from like our family and gifts and things like that. And um, we don't take those for granted. (laughs) We are continually acknowledging that um, God is blessing us with things that we don't deserve, Mm -hmm. even though in some ways we've earned them, um, we don't deserve them. Um, And we just have that kind of attitude, like this isn't really ours to hoard it's ours to be used. And I think we, we're always kind of conscious of, again, we we're updating our, our bathroom and, you know, spending some money on improving our house uh, and, you know, the investment we have in our property, but like um, at the same time, we're not blowing it all on, you know, prodigal son food and parties. Like yeah, uh, we um, we're conscious of our tithes and we, um, are conscious of other people's needs. And we're, I think we're, we do a pretty good job of, of giving to other people. Not even people that don't have as much, but just like doing nice things for people like financially. And mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I like the idea that the image of just like having, holding things with an open hand um, and just being willing to freely give. Yeah. I think this does challenge some of the, I think the kingdom of God challenges the way some people I've heard sort of even talk about people who are poor and there's sort of this. So uh, this, forgive me if this is judgmental, but this is what I've gathered from some people who are followers of Jesus is that they have more of a posture of um, if they're poor in America, they're poor for a reason. They're probably lazy and they don't deserve my hard earned money. Um, And that seems to be the starting point. Now there are some people who you just continue to enable uh, you know, they will take advantage of your generosity. Like that is true. There's some people who will use money for, um, addiction. That's possibly true, but I just think the kingdom of God calls me not to begin with that posture. I think the kingdom of God calls me to begin with an open hand and with compassion, because that's not everyone's scenario. That's not everyone's story. Um, you don't know, uh, you, you don't know some of the factors that played into them being where they are and, and God's love and his grace and his forgiveness and his blessing in our life is not based on our merit. Like it's not distributed just based on our worthiness. So like, who are we to hold the blessing as God has given us with that sort of measure? Like mm-hmm. um, yeah. they, they have to prove their worth, my generosity first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should just know, assume that people who are creating the image of God, whom God loves uh, are worth our generosity until proven otherwise. <laughs> I mean, thank God that we didn't have to prove our worth for God's generosity. Like <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. Like it's not something that we've earned and we've been given a generous blessing from God and it's not ours to withhold. And I think the parallel is the way that we use the, you know, the, that's the spiritual blessing we've been given in Christ, the physical blessings we've been given in our possessions and our funds. Like we model that same spirit other people. Yep. Yep. I think that's, uh, that's good. So the last category I have, um, then we can wrap it up. Right. Uh, 
which I, I have the last category and then a couple of thoughts too, but um, I want to read Matthew uh, 25. The last category is power and authority. So how, how we view power and authority in Matthew uh, chapter 20, verse, uh, verses 25 through 28, it says, uh, but Jesus called them together being his disciples and said, you know, that the rulers of this world Lord are over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think another important parallel is sort of ideas. Paul's writing in Philippians 2. He says, um, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Do not look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And I think that also calls back to when Jesus washed the disciples' feet and all that stuff. Like there's all these, you know, the attitude Jesus had, there's all these examples of Jesus sort of self-giving love. Yet he's the one who had all power and authority, yet he stooped to wash people's feet. So I think, um, yeah, going off those scriptures, what, 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 how does the kingdom of God redefine how we view power and authority? We've heard the, the buzzword servant leadership a lot, I think, in Christian circles. But I think like it really is, it's not just a buzzword. It's the, the way of life that Jesus calls us to. You know, that Philippians passage, is, it's so beautiful because, you know, it goes on to talk about like how though he was God himself, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And therefore, God gave him the name that is above every other name. God gave him power and honor and authority. And so Jesus taught, and I think this is kind of what made him so controversial in a lot of ways. Like Jesus taught that true authority, true honor, true recognition comes through humility and sometimes even humiliation you know you mentioned like the the turn the other cheek passage um jesus lived in an honor and shame culture and to slap someone on the face was a direct challenge to their public honor and it was a huge deal like people would rather in that day and age like they would rather have died than been publicly shamed and to slap someone on the cheek was to publicly shame them. And Jesus said, don't stand up for your, don't stand up for your own public honor, but turn the other cheek, turn away, uh, have the humility to stand down. And so Jesus, his message was, you know, I have come from, you know, the kingdom of heaven to earth. I've taken the form of a child, been born uh, to a woman walked among you, lived among you, served among you, um, taken upon your sins as my own and died. <laughs> and there, and that will, you know, that has inaugurated my eternal kingdom, which I am going to rule over for eternity. Like the path to glory is not stepping on people, taking advantage of people, uh, harming other people to get your own way. The path to true honor, uh, in Jesus's teaching is humbling yourself, serving others, even to the point of sacrificing your own life for someone else. So um, that leads into a quote by uh, 
man named Greenman, but it's quoted uh, in the book, The Road to Missional by Michael Frost quotes him. It says, the cross is the supreme revelation of God's power and weakness. And the resulting paradox is that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Second Corinthians 12, nine, just as God's power was made perfect in the self-emptying weakness of Jesus at the cross, Christian leaders are people who live the cross, humbling ourselves, voluntarily divesting, divesting themselves of their rights and privileges, trusting not in their own wisdom, insisting not on their own way, doing nothing out of self, selfish ambition, seeking not their own advantage, but the benefit of others, in humility, considering others better than themselves, giving up their lives for the sake of the lost, the vulnerable, and the neglected. Like all of those phrases too, you could you could put a scripture reference like mm-hmm. by every single one of them. It's just all through the New Testament because it it's derived from Jesus's teachings. James, Jesus's brother in James 4.10 says, humble yourself before God and then he will lift you up. Like mm-hmm. exaltation comes through humility mm-hmm. in the kingdom of God, like which is totally contrary to the way of the world and how yeah. it works in the world. I think of uh, in the Old Testament, I always like drawing the parallels between the Old and New Testament because it's not new stuff Jesus is making up you know, on the spot. Uh, and I think we see a lot of it in the story of David too. Like he had a corrupt kind of tyrant over him as king and Saul. David had every opportunity to violently seize power, uh, several opportunities to actually kill Saul, and he chose not to. He chose to humbly submit, humble himself under Paul Saul's service, though you know Saul was unrighteous. And through his humility, through his obedience, uh, probably most importantly, through his obedience to God, he was made Israel's greatest king. And I think that speaks to a lot of we can practically yeah, apply that, I think, today in our own world, because I mean, shoot, how many people, you know, work under a boss that they just wish would, you know, move, get fired, (laughs) Uh, you know, something bad would happen to them. Like people who are, you know, tempted to vie for power, undermine their coworkers, um, just get, you know, get authority and and power in, in, in whatever way possible. Like that totally is contrary to what Jesus teaches, what the Bible teaches us that, you know, true honor is, it comes through humility. It's not guaranteed. Like, I don't think we can say that, like, you know, if you're humble, then you'll uh, be made CEO of your company. But um, I think the principle applies that, like, you know, the, the honor that counts, the honor that, you know, truly matters is the honor that you receive as a citizen of the kingdom. I'm kind of rambling here, but you get the idea. No, yeah. The, the truth is, is you may not be recognized. You may not get a power and authority by being humble in this world, but that goes back kind of to the the scripture we referenced with the money where your treasure is, your heart will be also like, mm-hmm. where are you putting your identity and all that stuff? And I think for me, the reason this is so important too, is this shapes, um, this is one of the lens through which I discern uh, the degree of influence other leaders have in my life. Like I don't, um, I look for humility and people who I will invite to be mentors or to speak into my life, even if they're like mentors from afar. So like authors and theologians and people like I look, 
I look for signs of humility, not arrogance and um, this desire to cling to power. You know, uh, that's what I would define as good use of and and if they use the power. So another thing I think with power and authority, and Jesus used his power and authority to lift others up. Like uh, we, we should use our power. Like if we have influence, we should use it to lift other people up mm-hmm. as best we can. I want to say I think a lot of these things are very, very counterintuitive either to our human nature or to like our worldly culture, which is why I think we need the Holy Spirit to actually do change these things. Like I need the spirit to, to help me forgive people and not want something bad to happen to them because mm-hmm. they've hurt me. Um, and the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like these are things the spirit produces, but Paul talks about us being transformed, uh, not conformed to the pattern of this world. Uh, all these patterns of revenge or greed or um, uh, power, how we hold power or these patterns of judging people. Um, don't be conformed to that pattern, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I think it's something the Holy Spirit does in us, but I think we cooperate with the Holy Spirit by allowing sort of our paradigms to be challenged by Jesus's teachings. So mm-hmm. I think I think the Spirit's not going to change something in us. We are not willing for the spirit to change. (laughs) And sometimes we're not going to be willing for the spirit to change something in us. If we don't think rightly about it. Like if I don't think I have a problem, if I think, if I don't think there's a problem with how I view um, money, let's say, if I don't think there's a problem with how I view money, I'm not going to be open to the Holy spirit working in my heart. Uh, But if I step back and reflect and, 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 and like seek for my mind to be shaped by Jesus teaching as the spirit convicts and brings to the light. There's like this process of transformation, I believe. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that? Cause I feel like a lot of the stuff we just said is like, it's really hard. It's really counterintuitive. Be humble in the workplace. Like you don't understand, like it's a dog eat dog world yeah. out there, Matt. My boss is a jerk. Like, yeah, like the life of living, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's easy. <laughs> most of this is easier said than done. Um, which is, you know, why Jesus never promised that life as a kingdom citizen would be easy, you know, on this side of heaven. So, um, and I think that's, you hit on the whole point. Like, we're not just doing this to like espouse our, you know, political views or whatever. I know we've gone into that a little bit, but like, I think both of us are just trying our hardest or very hardest to think about what the kingdom of heaven means for us today and how its realities should shape our lives as followers of Jesus in our world. And um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that we have in the church today is like the kingdom of heaven doesn't apply. It's, it's coming, you know, later. We're just waiting for the world to end, for God to burn it all up and make everything new. But I think what we're talking about, what we were trying to do here through this you know, discussion is just give examples of areas of life where the kingdom of heaven is invading our world um, through us. And like Jesus said, the kingdom is accessible. We can claim citizenship in it today. And the truth is like, as Jesus followers, if you've said, you know, Jesus, your Lord of my life, you have claimed, you have made a citizenship claim in the kingdom. And so its principles apply to you today. And I think that's what we've been trying to get across. 
Yeah. And even if you have more of like a, well, the kingdom of God isn't going to come until the millennial reign of Christ and you want to get an eschatology, that's fine. Okay. That's, that's fine. I would still go back to, but you still strive to live free from sin in this life. So you should still strive to live as a citizen of that kingdom. Even if you differ from Matt and I's uh, kingdom theology, like these things should still be bearing fruit because we're followers of Jesus, not just like, you know, converts to a religion. Uh, we're supposed to follow the way of Jesus. Um, I want to share like some other thoughts, some summarizing thoughts, Michael Frost and N.T. Wright, the uh, N.T. Wright. You say Michael Frost. I think of the poet, but no, it was Robert Frost. I always say the road less traveled back. You you really love your poetry, but it's no, no. He's a, (laughs) he's a missiologist from Australia with a fantastic, he's, he, like me is bald with a beard. Nice. Uh, he's got a, a good beard though. Beautiful. And he's got a great accent. He's Australian. Can you, can you read the quote in an Australian accent? I cannot. I just, we've had this conversation before. I can't do it. Oh no, that was British with NT. Yeah. NT writes yeah. from, from the motherland and Michael Frost from Australia, but they, so Michael Frost sort of borrows from NT, right? Actually. Um, but they, and, and then I sort of condense what they said too. So they talk about kingdom uh, ethics as being displayed through actions that work towards, uh, so they summarize kingdom ethics as being displayed through actions that work towards reconciled relationships, restored justice, and recaptured beauty. So reconciled relationships, enemy love, radical forgiveness, humble confession, all of these are part of that. Restored justice, efforts to advocate for justice for the poor, the racially marginalized, and systematically disadvantaged, our kingdom efforts on earth as in heaven, right? Recaptured beauty, I love this because we don't talk about this enough in the church, but once upon a time in the church, this is evidenced in the just uh, beautiful architecture and some cathedrals I've been in, Um, but the recaptured beauty, art, music, architecture, stewardship of nature, coronary creations, like all of this is something you can do for God's glory too, um, that has kingdom value. So like uh, reconciled relationships, restored justice, recaptured beauty. N.T. Wright in Simply Christians wrote, we are called to be part of God's new creation, called to be agents of that new creation here and now. We are called to model and display that new creation in symphonies and family life, in restorative justice and poetry, in holiness and service to poor, in politics and painting. Um, So I think what I love about this is this even widens the view of the kingdom. We didn't talk about it much, but it widens the view of the kingdom that like, there's so much we can do that has eternal kingdom value and can be life giving to this world. So go out and live out the kingdom as the life of heaven becomes more alive in you is, is what I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, Matt? No, that's a good, that's, that's good to end on. It's a good summary statement. Awesome. Well, Hey, thanks for joining us listeners. Uh, Matt and I are going to be working on planning out some, some future episodes. Uh, we, we have yet to, to sit down and do that. So we don't have a preview yet for sure what will come next, but it will be good. We will discuss it. And <laughs> it will it, happen. It will, it will involve food. Food. Oh, Which when we discuss it. Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 Our yeah. podcast may not involve food. Oh, no. But it could. Our discussion of the podcast will definitely involve food. Yes. Because it's impossible for us to hang out without eating. Jesus and loved. Jesus loved it is gathering true. with people at the table. Some of the best ministry Jesus did was at the dinner table. He was always eating. 
He was he was <laughs> accused of being a, a drunkard and a glutton. He he yeah. did it so much. So like, anyways. Uh, hey, if if you found this podcast, uh, this episode, uh, encouraging, inspiring, challenging, infuriating, <laughs> like and share. Uh, it, it, it helps widen our listener base. If you, if you found it infuriating, maybe, maybe don't, maybe you won't like it, I guess, but I guess you can, I guess you can share <laughs> it angrily yeah, and get people to listen to it and agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us for Theologizing Life until next time. Happy new year.